Ben Tanaka. He is our guest here today from Retired Japan. You can find him on his website, or you can go to his website, website retiredjapan.com. And that started off as a forum to help expats understand personal finance. So Ben, mainly thing, the, the thing about you is you, you believe everyone should have control of, of their personal finance. And money should support their lifestyle and goals, it should not be a source of worry and stress. And I took that straight from your from your website there. But yeah, so we're, we're joined here also with with David from from Expat Fire Club as well. So David, thanks a lot for, for joining us here on the interview. Happy to be here and nice to meet you, Ben. Yeah, nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So let's go ahead. Let's jump right into it. And yeah, David, go ahead whenever you're ready. Sure. I just want to start with some, you know, kind of general background. Could could you tell us about how and why you moved to Japan and in particular, you know, why Sendai? Ah, right. That's very easy to answer. <laughs> so <laughs> I've all I'd always wanted to I would have been interested in Japan, you know, kind of read books and watch movies and things. And for me it was like martial arts that kind of thing. And then watching things like Akira or or the original Shall We Dance and st- and that kind of, you know that kind of movie and I was like oh, I kind of want to check it out but Japan had this image where Japan was incredibly expensive so you couldn't possibly visit as a tourist and therefore in my in my teenage mind I kind of turned into I have to go and work there <laughs> if I'm gonna have any kind of chance so I went over on the jet program and they sent me to Sendai so I'd never heard of Sendai I got the letter saying you're going to Sendai kind of opened up the the atlas because you know we didn't really have the internet back then <laughs> and uh, yeah I was like okay so I asked for Sapporo, I think, because those are the only two cities I knew. And they put me right in the middle between them. And that was supposed to be for two years. So I, I think most people, you know, they come to Japan for two years. And, you know, 22 years later, you're like, oh, what happened? So that was me. I think we all, all right. know that story. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds vaguely familiar. I was, I was a jet myself. I was also given a placement of a city or a prefecture I'd never heard of and had an encyclopedia that my mom had to try to, to, try to find it. Yeah, right. And, and no one knew about Sendai back then, you know. Now it's a bit more famous. I think most people yeah, have it's a, it's a, kind it's of a heard of it. It's a popular destination now, isn't it? Don't know about that. It's mainly the earthquake that, you know, put it on the map globally, you know. Oh, globally. I think we've seen Sendai at least. Yeah. Domestically it's always been quite quite popular, I think. It's got Matsushima, which is totally overrated, right? The the three pearls of Japan or whatever, you know, like. But uh, yeah, I mean, I always say to people, I have no idea why anyone would want to visit Sendai. But it's an um, it's a great place to live. It's probably the, you know, one of the best places I know of to live in. But I don't know why you'd want to visit because it's kind of just a nice place in Japan. You know, there's nothing really stand out about it. I thought it was right. famous for samurai. I could be wrong though. It has a yeah. I mean, the, one of the, the the guy that founded Sendai, Date Masamune, you know, the the one-eyed dragon or something. He's quite famous, and we milk it a lot. You know, there's statues of him and little character walking around. But other than that, yeah, I mean, why would I? Yeah, assuming that you already live in Japan or you're familiar with Japan, I don't know why you'd come here. You know, and people that come to visit, they just come to see us rather than see. Right, but, right. Uh, yeah. But it's a great place to live. Really recommend it if you're looking for a retirement destination, you know? Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of, yeah, kind of bringing it back to uh, talking about retirement and retired Japan kind of stuff. Well, growing up, Ben, it's really important, I guess, who teaches you about personal finance. Did your parents ever teach you, you know, about the importance of financial literacy when you were, you know, when you were younger? 
Nope, no. Nope. So my family, very much kind of working class. Like my mum was the first person that went to university in the family. Okay. Uh, and uh, my mum was a, a single mother kind of with, with two sons. So there wasn't a huge amount of money floating around there either. And then, yeah, I kind of, I lost my parents quite early. So when I was about uh, 13, 14, and then I grew up with my uncle and aunt and they, they were, they were kind of sensible, but not lit money literate kind of thing, if you know what okay. I mean. So, sure, sure. you know, they kind of got through day to day, but they certainly weren't investing or, or, you know, thinking on that level at all. And so I was the same. So I came to Japan, you know, I got a jet. Jet's a reasonably paid job for a single person, or at least it was back in the day, you know, so I used to spend my paycheck, <laughs> basically, sometimes borrow money from friends and things. So that went on for a while. So it took me until I was almost 30 before I really started thinking uh, more about learning about personal finance and getting better at it is the way. Was, was there some particular event or uh, occurrence or some change in circumstances, Ben, that kind of, you know, got you interested or, or caused you to reconsider your, you know, your, your financial position? Yeah, I think that that's basically what most people what makes most people start thinking about money is something happened, uh -huh. right? And for me, the thing that happened was my boss called me over and said, oh, we, we're not going to need you from March. Wow. <laughs> this is in November. So that, that was my wake up call because suddenly, you know, everything was incredibly stressful uh, and horrible. And I kind of looked at myself and I said, okay, this is actually my fault. You know, the fact that losing my job is this incredibly stressful experience where, you know, we might not be able to pay rent anymore this is my fault right i don't have the the this foundation and i don't want other people to have this much power over my life and that's that was the start for me i think that's what really kicked it off right were I, there were there people around you you could consult with at that time or is it or how did you you know go about setting your own foundation then it was many reading actually so i was really lucky to come across your money or your life which for me is one of the ultimate kind of mindset books you know, like if you read it now, the, the, the kind of investing advice or the, the financial advice, which is a small part of the book, doesn't really work anymore, right? They were working off like 10% treasuries or something, you know, from the 80s. But not, the not mindset, the, yeah. the mindset's so good still, you know, trading your time for money and, and what that means in terms of, yeah, it's just amazing. It was like, you know, it's like your head explodes or, you know, the matrix, the green stuff starts coming down. Yeah, I think in that book, the biggest thing for that's a Vicky Robin book, if I'm not mistaken, but she talks about how you should map out every dollar that you've made or every bit of money that you've made in your lifetime and put it onto a chart so that you can actually get a, a broad understanding of how much money you've made and, and where you're where you're headed to i love that exercise whenever i do a workshop I, I try and put that in and it's 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 a bit nastier than that so what you do is you say okay so rough rough calculation how much money have you ever earned or received in your life find the number Mm -hmm. Right. And then the next thing is, how much money do you have right now? <laughs> and then you compare the two and you yeah. cry. because <laughs> you know, You've clearly wasted all your money. Right. But so it works really I, well. I've, I've oh, not yeah. heard of that exercise before. So did you go through that when you were, were reading the book, Ben? And yeah. Yeah. Of, I mean, it was very was easy because I had no assets. So I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> I basically looked at my my paycheck so far and kind of added that up. And I was like, wow, that's quite a lot of money. And I have nothing to show for it. And that was a real wake up call. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah.
So aside from that, that big wake up call, was there any kind of like, like what, what's one of the biggest mistakes that you made kind of early on when you, when you decided to start investing or rather when you, when you started off on your investing journey, what's something that really cost you a lot of money, but at the same time, it was also like a good sort of learning experience. I think, I mean, there's, there's loads. <laughs> I, I, okay. We could spend the next couple of hours talking about it. I think the biggest one was ignoring the common advice. So basically everyone who doesn't have a, a, a vested interest in it says, mm -hmm. okay, you should buy index funds and not mess around, right? So you buy an index fund, you don't touch it, you leave it for 30 years and you'll be fine. But that seems too easy, right? So of course, the more you start reading more and more and you become more kind of knowledgeable, and you think there must be shortcuts, right? There must be a shortcut somewhere. And that was my big mistake. I, I thought maybe there was a shortcut. So I went into a hedge fund. I went into gold mining companies. I went into triple leveraged Russian stock funds, <laughs> which thankfully I got out of about 10 years ago. <laughs> it would not have been pretty right now. So just all that kind of thing. And, you know, now, 15 years later, I've come full circle. And this year, I've kind of sold off all my individual stocks. And I'm going back into index funds, just because that would have been much better over the last 15 years. I can, I can look at what happened and think, oh, I would have had much more money if I'd just done the simple thing that everyone recommends. Ben, do you think that advice holds true generally for people regardless of where they are geographically? You know, that holds true for people who are in their home markets and also for expats. And, and if so, you should expats consider their target market. I know some people who invest in you know, Nikkei 225, the Japanese kind of index fund equivalent, and others might target, you know, European or North American markets. Do you have any thoughts there? I, I try to keep it really simple. I just go for global stock funds. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which country is going to be successful 20 years from now. So if I buy all of them, you know, you kind of you hedging your bets, right? You're going to you're going to profit from the growth of the global economy, whatever happens. And Russia now is is a case in point, right? You could have been invested in Russia and the Russian stock market has basically ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. So I think that's always the risk if you're going for a certain country or a certain sector or, you know, but go as broad as you can diversify as, as much as you can keep your costs low and i think for most people that's the way to go right good good yeah so yeah. you mentioned something about you started off with a, a hedge fund i guess right it uh, was one of these momentum things it sounded very okay. clever uh, and they had amazing back tested results but you know obviously the fees eat you up and then obviously back tested results stop working once you know people catch on so of course. Yeah. So what would you what would you tell someone? I've heard people say, I've got a guy who handles my finances. What would you tell someone or what advice would you give someone who's just hired a maybe a financial advisor? Well, I think it's very, very important to understand what they're doing, mm -hmm. right? to be aware of what they're doing and why and, and also be aware of incentives. So I think when you're talking about money management, incentives are probably one of the most important factors. So how is this person getting paid, right? Mm -hmm. Are they getting paid when you make money or are they getting paid when you lose money? <laughs> is the big distinction here, right? A lot of financial advisors work on commission. So they get paid by the funds that they sell to you. And that obviously is a huge conflict of interest because they're going to sell you the fund that pays the highest commission 
not the fund that is most appropriate for you. That's the first kind of really big red flag, you know, if they're on commission. Mm-hmm. And then, but even even if they're on, you know, percentage of money under management, so they, they get a percentage of your, your holdings, mm-hmm. then their incentive is for you to have as much money invested as possible, regardless of whether that matches your kind of life goals or, so it's just, it's just really important to, have your own ideas. So ideally, a, a financial advisor is going to kind of simplify things for you. But I think you're going to need to have an idea of what you want them to do before you start. Mm-hmm. If you just walk in and say, hey, here's my money, you know, help, help me. It might not go the way you wanted it to. Right. Yeah, it's, it's important to understand, I would say, especially with that 1%, it sounds like a meaningless number to a lot of people. But once your investments start to grow, that 1% can be a lot of money. So if you're only making, or if you take the the total of, let's say you're making 8% per year, you know, taking out 1% of that compounded over 25, 30 years can be quite a bit of money. Yeah. And, and they're not taking 1% of the gains either. They're taking 1% of the whole thing. <laughs> total. Yeah. So yeah, it can be, it can be up to, you know, almost half your money over the long term, eaten up by fees, right? So. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's a famous book called Where Are the Customers Yachts, you know, because all the brokers have yachts and, and sports mm. cars and things. But what about the customer, right? So I've not read that book. That sounds fun, though. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I've read it. It's just got the best title ever. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really, you know, it reminds me of one of these memes I've seen. It, it came through a contact at the firm when I was working at a firm. And it was something like a partner talking to an associate. And it was like... I forget the exact words, I'll probably butcher it, but essentially, you know, thank you for your hard work last year. I expect you to work equally hard this year because I want another new Ferrari. You know, and that's what it is. You know, people, employees <laughs> work hard so that owners can prosper and, you know, brokers have it set up so that you know, they prosper, whether or not generally yeah. their investors prosper. Yeah. I had a friend who was like, yeah, I will sign on with an advisor who pays me when I lose money. You know, they get money when I make money and they pay me when I lose it. And obviously no one's offering that deal, right? Right. You'd have to be, that advisor would have to be fairly confident in their, in their advice to take on that deal. Right. You know, you said you had initially kind of ignored some of the common advice. I don't know how prevalent the common advice was when you started investing about, you know, index funds. I know it's, it's very prevalent now. Did you also get kind of any backlash or lack of support from your family? Or I don't know if you, if you were married at the time. And how has that dynamic kind of influenced your investing? Yeah, so my wife, I'm married. And she was very kind of normal in that she didn't understand investing and wasn't really interested in it and was slightly distrustful i think especially in japan i think after the bubble probably like a lot of people lost money in the bubble at the end of the bubble right the less sophisticated investors got slaughtered towards the end of the bubble because they jumped in you know when everyone was making money and, and they lost a lot of money and i think that has become kind of folk wisdom that you know investing is dangerous and, and normal people shouldn't do it like if you look at Japanese media, right? Like, you know, manga and TV shows and dramas and things like investing is often, you know, how the scammers approach people, right? They have some investing deal and the, you know, the, the good hearted Mrs. 
you know, Yoshida loses all her, her money and the house and all the rest of it. So this is a very common trope in, in Japan. So I think it's very common for Japanese people to be like, yeah, investing is dangerous and, and good people don't do it <laughs> kind of thing. It's very much that. So it was a slow process. So, I mean, mm. we, we started off slowly and I kind of managed her money as well because she, she runs this school that you can see behind me this is her business so we had we pretty much have separate finances in the you know she's got her income and her accounts and i've got my income and my accounts and but i manage her investment accounts because she's not interested interesting and it's taken a while you know like the mindset of not spending money you know i think basically for for, for me now money is not for buying things money gets you peace of mind and flexibility and options and freedom right it's not it doesn't buy you like a new car or something for me that's what money's for and it was it was a journey to get from you know i want a house and a car and you know i want to have the stuff that my friends have to okay i'm on board with this security kind of interesting a follow-up question on that you had said you know maybe one of the key events was losing your job. Do you have any specific approach to like, you know, make sure that if you were to lose your job now, that you're not in, in actually, actually <laughs> my, my contract finishes at the end of this month. So okay. I'm in effect losing my job again. So this was supposed to be a tenure track position and after two or three changes of management at the university it's no longer it's now a terminal contract that finishes at the end of this month and unlike in 2008 which was the last time it's perfectly fine so yeah i think yeah you basically need enough savings or investments to have enough runway you know you can you can pay your living expenses for as long as you need to to either find a new job or, or maybe not need a job and that's our situation now i think did you use some rule of thumb you know many people will have three months or six months or, or nine months or something of kind of living expenses but oh for the I, I gather kind of yours is a little more complicated you have kind of you know sufficient yeah i mean we have a lot of cash mainly because of this business so mm -hmm. you know we want to have kind of six months payroll in the bank kind of thing but no i mean basically for us our our, our base living expenses are low enough that we can probably survive indefinitely now okay but that's, that's the key, key. So there's two factors here right how much you need and how much you have and both of those are really meaningful but possibly how much you need is more meaningful so if you if you can live on very little, then you know you don't need all that much money to live for a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah interesting. I, I think that's I think it's J. L. Collins' book. What is it? The Simple Path to Wealth. He's got the the F U money kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, where yeah. It's like okay, well, I guess if you lost your job, like well, F U, I've got enough to survive on. So that's that's really important. That I, I think it's interesting. You say it's how much do you actually need, and determining that first of all. That's that's really important here. Yes, I think a lot of people look at their spending and they think this is my spending, right? But right. I think in, in, in reality, you can probably break it into two, which is one is kind of your fixed necessary spending and one mm -hmm. is your kind of optional spending. Mm -hmm. uh, and being aware of that, I think, gives you more, gives you a better picture of where you are. Right, right. So do you recommend keeping like a, a really tight budget every month and, and sticking to that budget or do you kind of 
get your salary and you pay you pay your expenses and then the rest is for kind of having fun rest is or some parts are for investing how exactly do you divide up the money that you have coming yeah in? i'm quite lazy and i hate kind of fiddly paperwork so I, I don't have a budget i did spend two or three months tracking my spending at one point i think that's quite mm -hmm. a useful exercise you know there's lots of apps that can help you with that so i think doing that for two or three months really gives you a, a good idea of what you're spending money on. So I recommend that as an exercise. Day to day, I don't have a budget. So what I do is I have fixed investment amounts. So it's the other way around, actually. So I get my paycheck and then immediately X amounts of money is invested. And then the rest of it, I'll pay the bills and, you know, go to restaurants and, and you know, buy books, <laughs> which is basically all I do. And yeah, so, but I think paying, it's called paying yourself first. Paying so you, you invest or you save first and then you spend the rest. Because if you, if you flip that, if you spend stuff and then you invest what's left over, you tend to find not a lot is left over. So That is a very, very key point right there is pay yourself first. And that should be like a key takeaway, I think, in this interview as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, let's see, coming back to, Ben, you'd, you'd mentioned earlier how I think there's that, that, that idea that investing is this like creepy kind of thing, this, this way someone's going to try and scam you out of your money. That, that's the way that people see it, especially here in Japan. So let's say that someone were to not invest for several years and they're, they're then they all of a sudden they decide well now I, i've been hearing a lot about edeco and nisa and and this fire movement so someone who's say in their 40s or maybe even their 50s uh what what would you tell them if they're just gonna they say they they make a decision they're gonna start investing what would you kind of tell them if they've gotten a late start but they're ready to at least get a start here well, I generally recommend, I have lots of clients like that, actually. That's pretty much my client demographic, kind of 30s, 40s is, is the most, you know, people, basically it's, it's something happens and the something that happens is, you know, they get family, they get married, you know, they realize they're going to be in Japan for a while and that's when people kind of start looking for help. Generally, I recommend not moving too quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the worst, basically the worst outcome is you decide to invest, you take your life savings, you invest them, you know, a month later, there's a stock market correction. You look at your account and see that, you know, a quarter of your money is gone. You freak out, you sell everything and you never invest again. So that, that for me is the worst outcome. So instead I recommend just doing it slowly, you know, start off with Ideco, start off with maybe Tsumita Denisa. Both of these are kind of fairly low monthly um, investment plans and just see how it goes, you know, and if you if you are comfortable and you understand the more you, if you actually do it, you start understanding the process better, I think. And at that point, it's very easy to just ramp up slowly over time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's no rush. It's very important that you understand what you're doing and that you're comfortable with what you're doing. That's how I would approach it. You know, I mean, even people in their fifties, you know, they've got three, four decades ahead of them, right. To invest. So. Okay. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on whether or not this advice, you know, if we would tweak it for people who reside in Japan, as opposed to say, you know, Europe or North America, where we see wage growth and maybe you have to be less, you know, you can be a little, 
more carefree perhaps when you're in your 20s because you expect substantial wage, wage growth as you spend more time in the workforce. And I think in Japan, maybe there's less wage growth. And do you have any, any thoughts on what people who reside in Japan who you know, really can't expect substantial wage growth, wage growth in the next decade? I, I wouldn't go that far. I think um, in Japan, the, there's a subset of jobs that don't really have any career progression. Mm-hmm. You know, the stereotypical kind of English teacher who doesn't improve their skills isn't going to see much in the way of career progression. But I think a lot of people do. Okay. So that's not. In fact, in Japan, starting salaries are so kind of low compared to where they end up that it's almost the opposite. People are going to see enormous growth from a very, very starting point. But again, it's, it's, it's more age than anything else. It's how much human capital you have left. So if you're 20, you know, you've got 40 years of, of work, 40 or 50 years of, of working left. So you have enormous human capital potential. So yeah, it's, it's, you can make big mistakes and, and gamble with things. But if you're 40 or 50, you know, then you've only got another 10, 20 years of work left. So at that point, you need to be a bit more careful with your resources, basically. So it's, it's, it's more where you are in life, where, what life stage you're in, than which country or which industry. Because it's going to be so variable anyway, you know, depending on your particular job or your particular career progression. So yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say the country makes a difference. It's just being aware of where you are, maybe. Right. Good, good. Yeah, so I was, I, I know that, well, Ben, I know you teach a class or you were teaching a class on personal finance at your university. And did you kind of get your, your students to use any special apps or anything like that, that, you know, would help them either track expenses or to help them get started with investing? No. So we, we basically focused on concepts rather than specifics because <clears throat> while well, my students are very clever people so <laughs> they can figure out the, the details i think but it's the concepts that matter even the fact that investing might be a good idea it was was very new to a lot of my students maybe because of these cultural factors but even that's changing in japan recently so when i started teaching the course almost none of the students had heard of you know the the tax free accounts we have here in japan none of them were investing you know not most of them were kind of hostile to the idea and this year most of them had heard of you know nisa some of them already had an investment account so it was like you know a lot of them were were playing with cryptocurrencies so mm-hmm. i think even in japanese society is kind of changing a little bit in terms of the the mindset like you can see it's for robo advisors on tv all the time right like that wealth navi uh, mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's, and I even saw a, a 30 minute news program on primetime news talking about the first people to do Ideco uh-huh. 20 years on, you know, how it had gone for them and what they were investing in. And so I think there's, there's, there's definitely from the government on down, there's a big push to encourage people to invest. Excellent. I, I would, I would echo that sentiment. I've seen changes as well and, and met 20 somethings who, who have, Nisa or our, our Ideco accounts and yeah yeah, yeah. which and is wouldn't have happened ten years ago I don't think so and from next month they're going to be teaching personal finance in high school 
I heard about that. Japan. Yeah. So I don't know how well they're going to do that. I'm a bit wary of, of you know, seeing the English teaching efforts. <laughs> but I think it's a good step. It's a very positive step. You know. With education in mind, are there any books or other resources? You know, of course, feel feel free to plug Retire Japan, but any other you know, broadly available resources that you think are just generally very helpful, you know, investors new and, and also experienced? I normally recommend Millionaire Teacher, which mm-hmm. is by a Canadian. He was a teacher and while he was investing and now he just does podcasts and <laughs> travels around the world. So. But that's a very clear book. So it's got very kind of solid principles. It's very easy to understand. So I'll normally recommend that. I do like The Simple Path to Wealth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, by J.L. Collins. That's a great book. It's very, it's it's a little bit US centric, but you can basically just swap all the names for whatever the local equivalent is. Right, um, right. Yeah. You also mentioned Vicky Robbins book on what is it? Uh, your money or your life, I think. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful mindset kind of mm-hmm. book. Um, mm-hmm. There's a Japanese journalist called Nako. And she has a range of books on Nisa and Ideko. And so for someone who reads Japanese, maybe a spouse or mm-hmm. an advanced kind of Japanese user, that's where I would go because the amount of detail in there is, is wonderful. It took me about three months to read. <laughs> yeah, I think a, a literate adult could get through it in a, a couple of days. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's my go-to for Japanese speakers, either the Nisa or the Ideko one. They've got a lot of shared content in that the investing part of it is very similar. And then there's the details of the accounts. So. Right, right. And and I was just thinking for, for anybody listening that doesn't really understand or know what Ideko is or Nisa is, and, and we're here in Japan, Ben, could you just describe in layman's terms or explain in layman's terms what the difference is between those two accounts and maybe why people should open them for I, I should also stress this non-us citizens should open them mm, yeah yeah so basically these are both created by the government to encourage people to invest for the future basically to, to supplement their public pensions which are likely Hi. to remain stagnant or fall in the future so that's the that's the background that. how they work is so ideco is for retirement mm-hmm. you you can take some of your pre-tax income and put it away and invest it yourself so it's self-managed so ideco stands for in individual defined contribution account so basically you have this account where you can choose what to invest in and it reduces your income tax to do this because it reduces your taxable income and in exchange you can't touch it until you're 60. So it's locked away. You can't get at it, which I think is a, is a plus. I think that's a good thing <laughs> because you don't want to cash out when you're 50 to buy that Ferrari or whatever. You want to keep it until you, you actually retire. NISA is basically an investment account. It doesn't give you an income tax, but it lets you invest tax-free. So mm-hmm. any profits you make in there, any capital gains, any dividends are not taxed by the government. Uh, and the reason people should use these is because if you're going to invest, you might as well not pay tax on the profits. Mm-hmm. And that's what these accounts allow you to do. Now, that they're, they're probably not going to be enough because the limits are fairly low. Ideco for a normal kind of employee is only 23,000 yen a month. For an entrepreneur or self-employed person, it's 68, which is more like it. But 23 is very low. And Tsumitata Nisa, which is maybe the, the best option for most people, is only 33,000 yen a month. So between them, you know, you're putting away 
what, 56,000 yen a month, which is a, it's a start, but a lot of people are going to want to invest in a taxable account as well. Right. And, and for any of our American listeners out there, we always have to take into account that we can't actually, or we shouldn't be opening an eDeco or a NISA account for, yeah, for Americans, my condolences. Hmm. I'm very sorry about your situation. Basically, this for, is all for, all a, all for all, a number of reasons. Yeah, all the problems are on the US side. <laughs> so it, this isn't Japan picking on anyone, which sometimes people have the idea. And dangerously, you can open all these accounts. You can buy all these products. Hmm. It's just that the IRS is going to rake you over the coals for doing so. <laughs> yeah. And they're not, they don't tell people about this, which I think is, is kind of irresponsible. You know, I think that the moment you move abroad, you should get a letter from the, the, the IRS saying, oh, you know, congratulations on being abroad. Here's all the things you need to know. But no, they don't tell you. So the number of people I've met who have been like, I had no idea. And now I've got all this paperwork, you know. Yeah. So basically for Americans who are non-resident in the U.S., the best thing seems to be to just use a U.S. broker and invest in U.S. products. And then your U.S. tax return is quite easy to do. And your Japanese tax return is also relatively straightforward. As opposed to the other way around, where, you know, if you invest in Japan, your Japanese tax return is quite easy. And then the U.S. one's a complete nightmare. So, Yeah, and hopefully that's, prob point, that's probably the same advice that John and I give would give do give yeah right i mean at some point hopefully they'll amend these laws which weren't designed to do this you know they weren't intended to penalize people who live abroad but they do there's actually a, a group called the aca i think american citizens abroad mm -hmm. that lobbies to to you know change some of the the worst kind of rules and so i encourage americans abroad to join that group and and you know work for change you know because mm -hmm. I'm sick of dealing with it. Like I'm not even American, but it's yeah, it's yeah, very. It, it is. It is what it is for us. You know, we get some benefits. Is you know, obviously being an American, I could look at it only as half the glass being half empty, and there are you know there are some tips about having to file U.S. income taxes even though I'm resident abroad, but at the same time we do get some benefits if you try to make use of them, namely being the ability to borrow conventional loans from U.S. lenders. Ah, right. Yep. Because we file U.S. income taxes, they can verify our income. But that's not, doesn't apply to someone who's only investing in index funds. You know, it's, you have to be out there willing to get a, a real estate-backed loan. You've got very um, nice credit cards too, in terms of like air miles and things. Oh, I'm yeah, quite jealous yeah. of that. <laughs> plus, uh, plus they look fancy compared to these Japanese ones. They're like the dorkiest things you've ever seen. I have one more question on the kind of education. Hmm. And, you know, I think books are great, usually a first step for a lot of people. But do you have any thoughts or how much value do you see in, you know, online forums such as Retire Japan, where it's a little more interactive, you don't feel like you're all alone, you can kind of get a, a support group and people to bounce ideas off of? Yeah, I mean, what? for me, I often say that because it's disinterested because no one has any financial incentives an online forum it can possibly be the best advice you can get because it's crowdsourced as well so it's, it's you're getting the wisdom of crowds and no one has a, a financial incentive in in trying to sell you something so it might possibly be the only place you can get impartial kind of good advice mm -hmm. 
You know, if you go to an advisor, you don't know what their agenda is. You don't know how skilled they are. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm a huge fan. There's there's also there's other ones. Obviously, there's Retire Japan here. There's a really good subreddit called Japan Finance, especially for tax. And there's lots of Americans on there. So I always recommend people try that. And then there's the Bogleheads forum, which is enormous, right? I mean, and very, very, some of these people are just like, I don't know what, I think very detailed oriented. Writing, right? They're writing the code, the exactly. laws. And, and the, the, or even something like, you know, Mr. Money Master, yeah. Mustaches forum is, is quite good. There's even a Japan kind of section on there. So, right. Yeah. Personally, in my journey, as kind of lame as it may sound, the, the psychological and emotional support of having friends who are, who are, you know, undertaking the same journey at the same time has, has been like, like immeasurably valuable to me. Yeah. It's, it's these, it's, these types of forums. I think it's very important to have, yeah, company basically on this journey. Right. So definitely. Yeah. So you'd mentioned, Ben, you'd, you'd mentioned Mr. Money Mustache and, and I, I teach a class to some first year college students. And I like to introduce different, what, what I'd call like finance gurus to kind of give them, like, I'm not going to push them one way or another, but I just want to say, hey, these are what, you know, the, the big finance gurus are talking about. And Mr. Money Mustache talks about, I believe it's like a 72% savings rate, which is kind of unheard of for normal people. What would you say is a good savings rate for like the average person that, that's striving to reach financial independence? I always say you should save as much as you can without making your life worse, right? So it's it's finely balanced. It's going to depend on everyone. But basically, if you're miserable because you're saving too much, then that's not really the point. But yeah, I mean, you, you do. Basically, I think everyone needs to save around 20% of their income, I guess, for retirement. And that's for kind of normal retirement. If you're talking about retiring early, you need to be saving more than that. And the reason we talk about that is because <clears throat> by saving your income, obviously, your expenses are going to be lower as well, mm -hmm. which, again, is is reducing how much money you need. And I find for most, and certainly for me as well, like thinking about this, thinking, oh, I want to save more, I want to save more. You kind of realize that some of the things you're spending money on aren't actually that important and aren't actually bringing you joy. You know, in the words of uh, Marie Kondo, you know, does it spark joy? If not, then we get rid of it. So, and, and a lot of spending is like that. You know, I used to think about what car I wanted to buy next. Uh, and now I don't have a car. So, and it's, I'm probably healthier and happier for it. Interesting. You know, if you, so you're focusing on kind of saving as much as possible without having any kind of benchmark rates. Was there some point where you stopped just kind of saving for kind of an abstract retirement and you thought more about financial independence as, or was that like from, from the beginning where you targeting financial independence earlier than standard retirement age? Cause you know, for me, I guess I learned of financial independence a few years after I had started focusing on making sure I had a solid foundation just mm. for my own peace of mind, you know, so kind of, was there something that got you into financial independence? And for you, when do you think you will have made it or have made it? I'm not sure when that flipped, if it did at all. So I kind of, my, my plan for, for retirement and so on is, is basically based on overkill. I think we're going to end up with far too much money because I don't that know sounds, what's going to happen. That sounds yeah, right. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, just, you know, after going through the first big earthquake here, mm -hmm. and we actually left in the middle of the night because we were worried about the, the nuclear power plant. 
and left everything behind. And that was that was huge because we realized actually we didn't really care about any of the stuff we'd left behind. But that kind of event makes you think, okay, so what happens if we had to leave Japan next week permanently and just leave everything? You know, and how would that be uh, and so on so i think it's quite dangerous to assume that you know certain this much money is enough because it might not be or it might be do you know what i mean it's it's very mm. fluid and flexible so obviously i've got my monthly spreadsheet that <laughs> i update every month and i can see our net worth and and so on and i think we could probably live off it now we both still work like my wife's going to continue running her business uh, i'm going to help her with it I'm going to keep doing Retire Japan, just keep doing writing. And I think that's the kind of lifestyle I want going forward, you know, where I'm still making money, um, but it's not really a big deal anymore. I don't have to worry about making money. So is there something that you would, that you'd say like you have to splurge on like a vacation? I don't know, going to Disneyland. No, no, it's it's very optional. I mean, obviously, we before in the before times, we used to travel mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, we haven't done that for three years now. So, whether we'd go back to that, I'm not sure we would. You know, like the idea of being on an airplane for twelve hours is a little bit ick right now. You know, after after three years of COVID and stuff, mm -hmm. I actually had a colleague at work come into my office and not wear a mask, and I, I that was a bit weird <laughs> no this is a colleague that i don't i'm not particularly close with like with friends mm -hmm. we, we'd have lunch and stuff it'd be fine but that situation where i was like okay this is a semi stranger mm -hmm. and they're not where i was like oh that's there's a real psychological shift there so i don't know if we're going to travel in the same way that we did before you know we'd take two or three trips a year before mm -hmm. and now i don't know maybe we'll just go and see family and you know stay have longer kind of less frequent trips maybe interesting yeah and that's what we spend money on <clears throat> so our, our base spending is very low and then up to about half our spending is either travel or like gifts to family mm -hmm. you know we'll help family out with whatever or so a lot of our spending is is discretionary you know we don't have to travel and we don't have to give money to family so yeah our baseline's probably two three million maybe if we just hung out and and did our thing you know interesting man yeah I have, I have a question i think you said that your wife you know runs a business in which you're sitting right now has that been advantageous for your you know financial independence like in terms of really to to have a more flexible approach to expenses or, or anything like that yeah of course i mean just having two incomes right okay. um, yeah it's it's also been good in terms of safety i always look at this as being a bit like a stool you know so each income stream you have is a leg so if you've only got one that stool is not super stable and if someone takes that leg away you're, you're on your you're on the floor aren't you so mm -hmm. if i've got my, my i have i've had a full-time job the whole time i've been in japan so if i had that and my wife's got her business and we've got our investments and you know i kind of write things online that's that's four legs that's very stable. So that's how I kind of look at things. It's 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 less about maximizing, but more about really it's, it's redundancy. You know, we the more income streams you have, the more you know, the more you can afford to lose one. And this might come from losing my job back in the day because that was very stressful. So good, good. Yeah. Um, so so once you get to no, go ahead, David. 
I was going to say on income streams, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on you know, real estate. I think I mentioned, <laughs> I do invest in real estate, you know, <clears throat> oftentimes when you mentioned that you, it, it really flips the switch in people and there's those who are adamantly for it and adamantly against it. And there's usually a very small group of people who are like me, I don't know. I just want to curious how you feel. Yeah. So my grandfather on my dad's side was a builder and he his hobby was to buy like decrepit houses and do them up and sell them like this is like you know 50 years ago so he was the the original flipper basically the original flipper yeah and i have not inherited any of that so basically my my take on real estate is that i'm really lazy and i don't want to deal with anything like that you know i don't want to i don't want to like my actually i've got another my godfather in germany has hundreds of kind of apartments he's got this empire and he loves it so he loves going in and and doing the interior design and you know working with the contractors and getting everything just right and he's got his team and and he enjoys that and i wouldn't so, so that's why yeah i don't think it's for me i can see how how amazingly profitable it can be you know, I've seen case studies, I've talked, I've got friends that do it, but just, yeah, in terms of my quality of life, I don't think it would be a good fit. Right. One follow-up, any, any particular considerations you think for expats thinking about real estate as opposed to people who are in their, you know, their home countries? Yeah, I think it's going to depend on, on the market, isn't it? I think the Japanese is very different to other markets. So you're going to have to learn about it if you want to invest in the japanese market i think for americans investing in the us seems like a no-brainer you've got all these advantages so you know you can get cheap loans it's easy to do things and uk it seems to be becoming harder to invest in the uk so the tax breaks are being reduced it's getting more expensive regulations getting a bit more burdensome banks are less willing to lend so it's really going to depend on yeah exactly what you're trying to do Good, good. Well, Ben, we're, we're coming up here on the hour here. And, and thank you very much for joining us on our, our talk, especially like my said, pleasure. given the circumstances here. If everyone can see the, like we said, the, the bookshelves <laughs> that are knocked over behind you. We're going to clean up after after the, we get off the calls. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Well, well, we do have some kind of um, like the fire round, five questions that we'd like to ask you very quickly. So okay. first one here, cryptocurrency. Is yep. it something that you're ever going to invest in? I, I've been wrong about cryptocurrency since about 2013. So I had friends came up to me then and be like, hey, you got to get into this thing. It's really cool. Like, you know, I made enough money to buy a hamburger the other day. And I was like, yeah, okay, go away with your, your silly little pretend thing, right? And yeah, and I'm still wrong, but I still can't see why it would have intrinsic value. You know what I mean? I can't see how it's a productive asset. I don't see why any one currency has value when you can make a new one for free immediately. You can clone them, right? It's all open source. So yeah, it, it's basically, you know, Buffett style. It's in my, I don't really understand this, so I don't need to engage with it. I'm sure, you know, people will do fine. You know, I've been consistently wrong for eight years, so <laughs> I'm probably going to continue to be completely wrong about it in the future. But yeah, for me, it's not something I need to do mm -hmm. and I don't understand it. So I'll just stick to the thing that's working for me, I think. Okay. That makes sense to me. Moving on, let's say you're going to retire soon. For you, what does your first day of retirement look like? I think it looks exactly the same as 
my Sundays now, which is, you know, wake up, have some coffee, do a bit of work. And I mean, work, you know, I'm like, I'm reading on the internet and maybe writing something, maybe a bit of spend time with the family. I've got young grandkids that are a lot of fun right now. Hopefully get some jujitsu in. I haven't been able to do that for a, a few months and get to bed early. So <laughs> really boring lifestyle, but Wild. that's basically my, my ideal day. And if I could do that somewhere like Koh Samui in Thailand, you know, where you can sit on the balcony and look over the Andaman Sea while drinking your coffee and, and doing your work, that, that's even better. Awesome. Well, this next one is completely unrelated to investing or finance, but what's your favorite band? That is really tough. Yeah, it goes in circles. I, I couldn't okay. really. And most of the music I listen to is from like the 90s. You know, I think this is like, you know, middle-aged guy thing where, you know, you just listen to the stuff that you listen to when life was kind of more exciting. So I got I got YouTube music recently, you know, and they kind of suggest stuff. So I'm enjoying going through all these songs that I haven't heard for 20 years, 20, 30 years. I'm going to totally dodge. I'm, I'm quite into rap, which is um, not part of the image, maybe. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming at all. UK they talk, they, talk, they talk about money a lot though in rap so yeah there's sense. some really good money yeah if I, if I can plug how much by jme from the uk that's a really good money kind of mindset song similarly not necessarily related to investing what's your best or go-to dad joke well this is visual so i can't read it justice but when my youngest stepdaughter was in university she wasn't great at waking up in the morning so I'd often text her and be like, can you go to university, please? And uh, one day I texted her and said, are you ready for uni? U-N-I. Uh, wow. And she was like, yep. And then I sent her a picture of a sea urchin. And uh, yeah, that was that's my level of dad joke, really. <laughs> I'm on board with that pun right there. It's good for those, <laughs> for those of the listeners who, aren't, who don't speak Japanese, uni is yeah, Japanese sea urchin. Delicious. I got a very disdainful emoji back. Dad, I'm so you're so beneath me. Awesome, cool, cool. Well, as we uh, as we get ready to close this out, Ben, how can any of the people listening to the Expat Fire Club, how can they find you or maybe book a one on one call with you? Oh well, if you well, if they if they go to retiredjapan.com, they can get lots of information and join the forum, which might be the best thing. Mm -hmm. And if they want kind of personalized help i have an online coaching service and soon i'm hoping to have a course which is going to take over maybe half my coaching because at least half my coaching is like you know i just realized that i need to learn about personal finance and get started can you help me and i think maybe a kind of 10 hour course that really goes into detail is going to be more useful than than you know this kind of coaching call so that's what i'm hoping to build this year it's going to be called the first 10 million yen obviously because <laughs> i think for for someone to go from zero to 10 million yen in savings investments that that's life so that's 10 million that's about like eighty seven thousand dollars, maybe us yeah okay you know that's enough money to be a, a decent emergency fund that's enough mm -hmm. money to compound into something meaningful if you leave it for two or three decades you know that's that's yeah. It's an achievement. So if we can get people for, to there, we can change some lives, I think. So. Sounds awesome. great. Yeah, that's great. Ben, thank you so much for joining us here. Really, really appreciate that. 
that is stunning timing isn't it i mean it's it's 60 minutes coming up so. yeah. <laughs> excellent thanks a lot guys we can claim this it. because we all live in japan we keep these schedules all right and then right on cool i'm gonna go ahead and end <laughs> this stream right now thank you all so much for listening in and we'll see you in the next one